0: Gentlemen, we're going to take your advice on that. (laughs) Well, we've come to the main message portion of our service now, so let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we want you to know that we love your word. It's a wonderful window that we look through to see you, to see Jesus Christ, to see his life, the things that he said, the things that he did, and uh, they have a profound effect on us. It helps us to understand the kind of lives we need to be living. So Lord, as we read your word today, uh, make it not just echo in our heads, but also in our hearts. And let us learn and grow from what you teach us today. We wanna be changed, we wanna be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Help uh, this message do that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, today we're gonna study uh, from a gospel account in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter nine. We're going to read about an event that took place in Jesus' life and not just uh, describe it, but learn about what it means for us. And it does have a profound meaning for each of us. In Luke chapter 9, we're actually going to begin reading in uh, verse 26. Because in this case, Luke 9 verse 26, Jesus was uh, teaching. He was talking a little bit about his return, his second coming. He says in Luke 9, verse 26, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So that's a controversial verse, but it seems to be prophesying what is going to happen next. In other words, some of Jesus' disciples and some others are going to see the kingdom of God, and they're going to see it demonstrated. So We come to the section called the transfiguration. A long word, but it comes from two words, trans, which means across, or it could also mean change. Remember, we used to have transworld airlines, and airlines that went across the world. Figuration means appearance. So, in other words, transfiguration means the change of appearance, and that's what's going to happen to Jesus in this passage here. That's what transfiguration means, and that's what it's all about. So, we read on now in uh, verse 28. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and went up onto a mountain to pray. Now, Jesus had 12 apostles, but it seems that he was especially mentoring three of them, James, John, and Peter. And of all the apostles, these three became very powerful and influential leaders in the early church. In fact. John wrote the Gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Peter wrote 1st and 2nd Peter, and James wrote the Book of James, and he also became the leader of the Church of Jerusalem in the Book of Acts. So these three he was mentoring and teaching in a special way, so these three, Peter, James, and John, were given special opportunities to be with Jesus at very special times. So he leaves the other apostles aside and he brings Peter and John and James with him. And he went up to the mountain, in this case, probably Mount Hermon. Uh, It seems to, to be the likely location as to where this happened. It says in verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. This is what transfiguration means, a change of appearance So, Jesus' face changes, and his clothes become as bright as a flash of lightning. So, what God is doing here is he's giving Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, a view of what Jesus is going to look like in his glorified state. So, all of a sudden, Jesus' appearance changes, and it says in verse 30 two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. So these two men, Moses and Elijah, of course, were very important men and individuals from time of the old covenant. Moses was the one who not only brought Israel out of Egypt, led them out of Egypt but he was also the one who went up on Mount Sinai and actually received the law, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law from God himself. So Moses represented the law part of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and Elijah, perhaps the greatest prophet of them all. Now sometimes in the New Testament, it mentions the Old Testament and it refers to it as the law and the prophets. So those two words sum up all of the Old Testament. So, seemingly, that's why God brings, to appear with Jesus at this time, Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. So, their appearance is also in splendor, glorious splendor, it says. It's interesting to note that both these men were, in their ministries, if you think back to the Old Testament, they were both given someone to finish their work. Now, who finished Moses' work? Remember, Moses brought Israel out of Egypt. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, but when it came time to enter the promised land, Moses was not allowed because he made some big mistakes in the wilderness. Who replaced Moses? Joshua. Very good. So here's another question. What is the name uh, Joshua in the New Testament? Jesus. Very good. So interestingly enough, Moses, one of these men, did his ministry in the Old Testament. He carried out what God had told him to do, but right toward the end of his life, he had to have somebody come in and take over for him to take the Israelites into the promised land and into their reward. And it happened to be the man Joshua, who in the New Testament times, that same name means Jesus. It's translated Jesus. So what what is happening here on this occasion is kind of a passing of the baton, if you will. God is taking these three men from the old covenant to the new, and he's bringing two representatives here, two of the most important representatives of the old covenant, Moses and Elijah. And he's showing and demonstrating here now that just as Moses needed somebody to take over for him in the Old Testament, now as they enter the, the terms of the new covenant, here's somebody taking over for him, and now it's Jesus. So he's taking them from law to grace. He's taking them from the old covenant, leadership of the law under Moses, to now leadership by grace. Led by Jesus, and another thing to consider too is that Elijah, perhaps the greatest prophet of them all, well, he came to a certain point in his life where he was going to be replaced as well. Now, who knows who replaced Elijah? Elisha. Elisha. Very good, Margie. Very good. And when you read the story of Elisha, his life was very much like the life of Jesus. Elisha, even though he was an Old Testament prophet, cured someone of leprosy just as jesus did he raised a person from the dead during his ministry just as jesus did he fed a multitude with just a little bit of food just like jesus did so it's interesting to note that elijah the prophet when his ministry was finished and he was going to be replaced god brought along somebody in the old testament to take his place who was very much like jesus But now, again, with the passing of the baton, just as Moses is being replaced by Jesus, we're going from the old covenant to the new, we're going from law to grace. So likewise, Elijah and the prophets are being replaced by Jesus. So that's basically the meaning of of this whole vision and uh, circumstance that, that happens here. Another thing to take note of, too, There was a man in the Old Testament, or talked about in the Old Testament, uh, who was called the Elijah to come. Does anybody know who that turned out to be in the New Testament? Who was the Elijah to come? No? John the Baptist. Very good. John the Baptist. So you had Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament, who was replaced by Elisha, but then there was an Elijah to come in the New Testament, John the Baptist. And who took his place, so to speak? Jesus. <laughs> Very good. So here is an interesting passing of the baton. God is demonstrating that the law has, has done its work, the prophets have done their work. Now here comes Jesus Christ, who has come to fulfill all of the law, to uh, fulfill all of the prophets. And he is demonstrated here before these people it says again in verse 30 two men moses and elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with jesus so here are these three apostles james peter and john they're witnessing this whole thing and here are these two men moses and elijah and they're they're having a chat with jesus what do you think they're talking about it says they spoke about his jesus departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, this word departure is actually the word exodus. Now, why would Moses and Elijah be talking to Jesus about his soon coming exodus? Well, think about it this way. Moses was the one who led the exodus out of Egypt. He physically led Israel out of slavery in egypt physical slavery so could it be that jesus was talking to moses and elijah and he was explaining to them you know moses you did a fine work leading israel out of egypt but i am going to perform an exodus myself when i die on the cross i am going to release people from the slavery of sin their sins are going to be forgiven so it's going to be just like your exodus in egypt but it's going to be the greatest fulfillment of it. I got a feeling that that's probably what Jesus was explaining to Moses and Elijah at this point in time. So again, it says they spoke about his, that's Jesus' departure or exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And what was going to happen at Jerusalem? His death on the cross. So by his death on the cross, Jesus was explaining to these two men that a greater exodus is going to take place now, Instead of just one nation, Israel, millions and billions of people are going to be brought out of, they're going to come through an exodus, if you will, from slavery to sin, through what I'm going to do on the cross in Jerusalem. When I die, it's going to bring about the salvation of of really all mankind, all those who will accept him, all those who will call upon his name, all who will believe and repent. They're going to be in their own exodus. So I got a feeling that's probably what Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah about, interesting. And where were Moses and Elijah so that they could be brought to this? Because they had died long ago, so I think that this further proves that when you die, you go to your reward to be with God. So God was able to bring them from where they were in the presence of, of, of the Father down to this event. So all of this can be demonstrated and all of this could be explained. Now notice what happened next. Peter, who was one of the three men witnessing all this, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So he finally realizes what's going on. He's trying to take all this in. It says in verse 33, as the men were leaving... Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters or booths one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. So, scholars think that perhaps this happened during the time of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And, uh, We know that Peter's a very bold person. He was the one who said to Jesus when Jesus started to predict his coming death and resurrection from the dead, Peter said to Jesus, not over my dead body is this going to (laughs) happen. You're not going to die. We're not going to let it happen. Remember, Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because what Satan was doing through Peter was trying to disrupt the whole salvation process by keeping Jesus from dying on the cross, that would have done away with God's plan for the salvation of the human race. So here's Peter again, kind of interrupting, coming up with an idea that he thought was good, but it really wasn't. You know, during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish people set up booths uh, that they dwelt in, little shacks that they put together, And the reason they did this was it reminded them of their time in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness when they lived in tents, and it reminded them of God's goodness and God's uh, preservation of them and protection of them. So here, perhaps during the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Peter gets the idea, well, for Jesus, for Moses and Elijah, let's put together three of these booths real quick so that they could dwell in them. But that wasn't the plan. These men, Peter and Eli- uh, Moses and Elijah, were only here momentarily to teach a lesson and, and to show this vision. But what Peter had in mind, again boldly, was like saying to Jesus, you know, this represents the kingdom of God. We want the kingdom of God to be established. Remember, Peter would get impatient with Jesus because Jesus was the Messiah to come. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, uh, Peter was upset because the kingdom wasn't being established right away. Because Peter thought when the Messiah comes, at salvation time, the kingdom is going to be established on earth. Israel is going to be the greatest nation of all once again. They're going to conquer all of their enemies. Uh, God's going to lift them up to be the chief nation. And it wasn't happening, because that isn't why Jesus, the Messiah, came. It wasn't to establish the kingdom immediately. It wasn't to lift Israel up immediately as the greatest nation on earth, and it wasn't Jesus' purpose to conquer uh, the Romans and all the other nations surrounding Israel. Jesus came to die on the cross. That was the role of the Messiah. Yeah, he's going to return later in power and glory, but now is not the time. But Peter wanted him to do it now. That's why when Peter found out, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus started to talk about how he was going to have to go to Jerusalem to die and uh, to be buried and to be resurrected from the dead, Peter said, no, we'll have none of that. You're the Messiah. You're not going to die. You're going to lift this nation up to be the greatest of all. And Jesus had to say, no, that's not why I'm here now. I'm here to die on the cross for the salvation of the human race. Well, in a similar way, when Peter says to Jesus, seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus together, Peter is saying, yeah, it's kingdom time. Now that Moses and Elijah are here with Jesus, for sure this has got to be the time when the kingdom is to be established. It's beginning now. Let's get get things moving. We want uh, Moses and Elijah to dwell here with us. We're going to put up these booths. But that wasn't the reason this was happening. Peter in his boldness wanted the kingdom to start now, and it wasn't God's timing. You know, there was a prophecy that Peter knew very well. Turn with me back to Zechariah chapter 14, right at the end of the Old Testament, the second last book in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 14. This was a well known prophecy at Jesus' time, and Peter certainly would have been aware of it. Notice what it says Zechariah 14 beginning in verse 16. Talking about a prophecy of the future, it says, then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the people of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no reign. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So they knew the prophecy that when the kingdom is established, everybody is going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So Peter thought, well, this has got to be the time. This is the start of it, of all nations, all peoples, celebrating the Feast of Booths. So Peter was pushing for Jesus to initiate the kingdom of God now, not relying on God's timetable, but he wanted it to happen now. You know, if if Peter could kind of take Jesus aside, I think this is what he would have said. You know, Jesus, we believe that you're the Messiah, uh, the long-awaited Messiah but, but buddy, you're doing things wrong, you see. You arrived on the scene, and we know from the prophecies of the Old Testament that you're to come with power, that you're to raise Israel up to be the chiefest of nations, that you're to destroy all of our enemies. And listen, you know, buddy, you're not doing it right. <laughs> Let me give you some advice here. You, you got to get with it you got to establish this kingdom. We've been waiting for you for a long time. We're getting a little tired now because you're not doing what you should be doing. I think that that would be Peter's advice to Jesus. And on many occasions, Jesus had to tell him, you got it wrong, Peter. I didn't come to set up the kingdom of God on earth now. Yeah, I'm I'm the, the forefront of the kingdom of God. I represent the kingdom of God, but this time of conquering nations, this time of power and majesty, it's not now. It's still in the future. And Peter didn't like to hear that. What Jesus was telling him was that, listen, before that can happen, I got to do something first. The kingdom of God is going to be established through the cross. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem to do something, to die on the cross, to suffer, to be uh, humiliated, to be tortured, to be spat upon. That's got to happen first, Peter. And Peter didn't understand that, and he didn't want to accept that. The kingdom of God is to be initiated through the cross. And what's the lesson for us? Well, in order for us to participate in the kingdom of God in all of its fullness, we also have to go through the cross. And what do I mean by that? Well, we're told in Luke chapter nine, verse 23, just a page or so back, Luke 9, 23, this is what Jesus said. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So our reward comes through the cross. Not just the cross of Jesus, which he suffered in Jerusalem. Remember, he was talking to Moses and and Elijah about the exodus that he was going to perform at Jerusalem by his death on the cross. He was going to bring people out of slavery to sin to salvation. But it also applies to us, you see, because we have been told that we must also carry our cross. We would like Jesus to return now and establish the kingdom now and change everything on this sinful earth now. But we also have a cross to bear just as Jesus did. So, yeah, reward is coming. (laughs) Just as Jesus was changed, we too are going to be changed. You know, when James and Peter and John saw Jesus in his glory, it also pictures what's going to happen to us. But just as Jesus first had to go to the cross before he was going to enjoy that glory, we too have to carry our own cross in our life before we achieve that glory. And what is that cross? Well, it it is whatever you experience in your life that is difficult, that is painful, that is something you would rather not choose to do, but it's according to God's plan for you to do it. So what is it? For maybe some of you, it's your job, which you hate, and you, you you don't feel fulfilled in it, Maybe that's part of your cross. Maybe it's family relations that, uh, you know, relations aren't good between you and your mate or relations aren't good between you and your children or your grandchildren. Maybe that's the cross that you have to bear. Maybe it's a physical problem that you're dealing with, a health issue that you're struggling with. Maybe that's the cross that you have to bear. Before you achieve what Jesus pictured there, eternal life in the kingdom of God, uh, a changed body, uh, radiating God's glory. Before that can be achieved, you have to carry your cross, just as Jesus had to carry his cross before he could enjoy the fullness of his glory. When the apostles saw Jesus' glory, when he was transfigured, when his appearance changed They were also getting a preview of what was going to happen to them eventually. Their own glory. And when we read this story, we get the same message. Jesus was changed and glorified so that they can see him. His face shone as bright as lightning. That's the same thing that's going to happen to us. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, this is what the Apostle Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, Jesus at his second coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So when Jesus returns, our change will take place. No longer will we have this physical body that is getting old and getting weaker and, and too often dealing with sickness and disease. We will be changed. We will be transfigured, okay? Not just in appearance, but in being. It's not gonna be brief like it was for Jesus in this case. It will be permanent. It will be eternal. We will be changed to be just like Jesus. He will transform our bodies to look like his. So our path to that glory through suffering is the same that was laid out for Jesus at the transfiguration. He is showing this is what I'm gonna look like when I'm transformed, when I'm glorified. But he also said, you know what, for now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, to the cross. So the same path is laid out for us. Our eventual situation will be glorified bodies, eternal life with God, with with all the the rewards and blessings of, of being in heaven and being in the very presence of God. But first, we've got to carry our cross, the cross that God has assigned us. And each of our crosses is different in some respect. But we're to carry it. So reward comes through suffering. But it's suffering that we endure gladly because we know what the ultimate outcome will be. Now back here to Luke 9. Let's finish the story. Luke chapter 9. Where did we leave off? Yeah, 33. As the men were leaving Jesus' Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, the kingdom's going now. Let's, let's you know, build permanent places for these men to stay and dwell. But no, that wasn't to be. They, they disappeared. They left. Verse 34, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Again, that passing of the baton. God the Father is saying, Jesus is my son. The law and the prophets have now faded out. He has come to replace them. He is the one now that you listen to. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Come out from the old covenant to the new. Verse 36, when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Well, actually, they eventually did. In Matthew 17, it's the same account of the transfiguration. Matthew 27, verse 19, or verse 9, rather, says this. Matthew 27, verse 9. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Well, wait a minute, Matthew 17, not 27. Matthew 17, verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen, the transfiguration, until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So the glory that awaited Jesus is the glory of the resurrection, which means he won't get that glory apart from the cross, his death and resurrection. And this is true for us as well. The glory that God has in store for us, the time when we will be changed, to be glorified just like Jesus Christ, we have to go through our cross, our death, and our resurrection. That's when it takes place. So after Jesus died, rose from the dead, Then the apostles were free to share this story of what happened at the transfiguration. So Jesus, don't forget, he is called the first fruits of the new creation. He demonstrated at the transfiguration what is eventually going to happen to him and what is eventually going to happen to us. He is the first fruits of the new creation. So what happened to him is what our reward is going to look like. Jesus is also called the firstborn from among the dead. So he was the first one resurrected to glory as we will be in the future when we receive our reward. It also says about Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are given the same instruction, we are given the same encouragement. Who for the joy set before us, what is the joy set before us? Eternal life with God, a glorified body, which Jesus just demonstrated for us. For the joy set before us, we're to endure our cross, whatever that may be in our life. We're to endure our cross, scorning its shame, because we're going to sit down at the right hand of Of the throne of God along with Jesus. He's got a place waiting for us. It's waiting for us and it is assured. So when we face the trials and the difficulties that we face in our lives and when we ultimately even face death, which is going to happen to all of us unless Jesus Christ returns first, that is the attitude that we're to have. Jesus was determined that he was going to Jerusalem to fulfill the commission the father gave him to die on the cross. We need to have that same determination in our life. And you know, as was said in the video today, you know, whatever we face with, we face in our life, we're to do it for the glory of God, whether it was making ale like the monks did, you know, to sustain God's work that they were doing. If it's our job that, you know, Could easily become a a, a trial or a burden for us were to face it with the same determination that Jesus had when he went to the cross. Whether it's the health issue you know and I think of our friend Frank Mitria and his ongoing health problems and all that he suffers he does it with determination because he knows his ultimate reward. So instead of getting angry with God, instead of getting impatient with God, When we're going through a trial, we want to be like Peter and say, okay, Lord, remove this trial now. I've had enough. I've learned my lessons. You can take it away now. And the Father says to us, no, it's according to my timetable. I know you better than I know yourself. And it's not time yet. You still need a little bit more time. This trial is going to draw you closer to me. This trial is going to cause you to pray more often to me. And that's what you need right now. God knows what's best, just as he did with Jesus. So let's follow Jesus' example. This wonderful story of the transfiguration was not just a demonstration of what was going to happen to Jesus, but it's a demonstration of what's going to happen to us. And just as Jesus had the determination to carry out according to God's timetable, going to the cross first before he receives his reward, let's keep the same lesson in mind, because it applies to us as well. There's wonderful things ahead for us, But there are wonderful things that we have now because God is at our side. He strengthens us daily. He'll never leave or forsake us. And he's determined to see it through to the end. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you taught us today. Thank you for the example of Jesus as he demonstrated literally what will happen to us eventually. We look forward to being glorified We look forward to be sitting at your throne with you, along with Jesus. He saved a spot for us. And Lord, uh, give us, in the meantime, the wherewithal to get through each day as we carry our cross. Lord, it's only by your strength and power that we can do this. We love you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.